Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We live in a culture which stresses self-sacrifice and perceived security and stability over the potential happiness and self-discovery, which can come with quitting and moving on to something new. Our guest this week is living proof of how fruitful quitting can be. Keith Boykin is a TV and film producer, a national political commentator, a New York Times bestselling author, and a former White House aide to President Bill Clinton. A graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School, Boykin has taught at the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University, City College of New York, and American University in Washington, D.C. He is a co-founder and the first board president of the National Black Justice Coalition and Lambda Literary Award-winning author of five books. His new scribd, original, Quitting, Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom, is now available. Millennials are estimated to make up more than a third of the workforce. A recent survey found 43% plan to quit their jobs within two years. Well over 20 million people quit their jobs in the second half of 2021. Some are calling it the big quit. Others, the great resignation. Quiet quitting means that when somebody asks you to do something that's not in your contract, you don't do it. The concept of quiet quitting. Not doing a job with two to three people, you know, stuff like that. Is making some very loud noise on TikTok. Yes, it's true. I left my nursing job where I made over $170,000 at, and I haven't regretted it at all to this day. Hi, I'm Keith Boykin. I'm an author of six books, and I'm fighting for a world where social justice applies to all people, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, disability, or any other status that might make them marginalized. Sorry, not sorry. Keith, thank you so much for being here with us on Sorry Not Sorry. I have so many questions for you, but first, just give our listeners a little bit about who you are. 
Thanks, Alyssa. It's great to be here with you and um, proud to be part of your podcast now. So I'm happy to be able to join you. I am originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I've lived all across the country, currently live in Los Angeles by way of New York City, where I lived for 20 years. I'm a former CNN political commentator for five years, an author of six books, political science professor at American University, Columbia University, and City College in New York, and a former White House aide to President Clinton, a graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School. So I've had a lot of different careers over the course of my life. So I want to start way back in the 90s. You graduated from Harvard, right, like you said, and you were working on the West Coast. And then what happens? You get a phone call. What was that call like and how did it change your life? Yeah, I was literally studying for the bar exam here in California. I was in San Francisco at the time and I really didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I was going through the motions. And then I got a call one night from Dee Dee Myers, who was the press secretary for the Bill Clinton campaign. And I knew her because we'd worked together in 1988 in the Dukakis for President campaign. She called me out of the blue and asked if I'd be interested in working for Bill Clinton, who was running for president. I didn't hesitate. I said, yeah, Hallie, I'd love to do that. And I was just so excited by the possibility I could work for a political campaign instead of going to work for a law firm job. But it wasn't exactly something that was well-received in my family. Like, all my family members thought it was a crazy thing to do because I just graduated from law school and had all this debt. The smart thing to do is to go practice law, but I didn't want to do the smart thing. So I'm just trying to paint the picture, right? You're a recent college graduate, and then all of a sudden you find yourself working as a special assistant to the president of the United States. Did it feel like it was a dream job? Is it safe to say it was a dream job? Oh, yeah. I was 25 years old, I think it was, when I started working at the White House. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I just graduated from Harvard Law School, and I left my job to go work in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the Bill Clinton campaign. And I worked there for several months during the primary general election, and I didn't expect that he was going to win. I was hoping that he, could, he would win, but I'd worked for five other campaigns before, and none of them had ever won before. So when Bill Clinton won, I was shocked. It was a new experience for me. And I didn't expect that I would end up working in the White House after all that. So I got a job offer as a special assistant to the president uh, and director of news analysis in the communications shop working with George Stephanopoulos. And immediately I was just in this whole new world, something I'd never imagined before. Someone who just graduated from law school the year before and just come out the year before that. And then here I was working in the White House as the highest ranking openly gay person in the Clinton White House. It was just a stunning reversal of fortune. You were there for a couple of years? I was there for the first few years, two years of the administration, yes. And then you decided to take a leap of faith. You quit your dream job. Why was that? Every job I've discovered is still a job. No matter how exciting it is or what venue you're going to, you're still going to work. It's exciting to go into the Oval Office and to drive down, well, you used to be able to drive down Pennsylvania Avenue. I could drive my car right into the little West Executive Drive, I guess it's called, between the Oval Office and the Executive Office building. But anyway, it was exciting to be able to do that and all, and there's a lot of privileges and perks that come with working in the White House. But it's still a job, and it's a hard job. You're working long hours, and you're all working there basically essentially to please one person, the president. And a lot of times, the interests of the president don't align with your own interests. And I didn't feel like it was where I needed to be. I didn't feel like I was being challenged by the job. 
And another better opportunity came along to write a book and then to lead an organization. And I really wanted to do something different with my life. And I felt like that was another opportunity. So I quit that job and did something else as well. I want to really unpack and talk to you about the value of quitting. But before we do that, I wonder, what are your thoughts on why so many of us are willing to stay in jobs year after year and in these situations, which are not bringing us happiness or fulfillment instead of quitting? You know, I'm loath to, to use this as a uh, citation, but there's a statement, a quote, if you will, from the Declaration of Independence it says that I'm going to paraphrase it, that people are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. That's how the United States started, the Declaration of Independence. And the idea is that inertia sets in. Inertia is the idea an object in motion will remain in motion, object at rest will remain at rest. If you're doing something every day, you get on this trajectory, this treadmill, you just keep doing it and doing it, and you don't realize you can stop doing it a lot of times until you do. You get away, you take a vacation, you do something different. You realize that this is not the way my life has to be. And when that moment happens, then you have a choice. Do you want to continue doing what you've been doing because it's safe and predictable? Or do you want to take the unsafe, less predictable route and do something that might bring you more joy? And that's a choice that I think causes a lot of fear for a lot of people because we're not taught to take those choices. We're taught to draw within the lines and follow the rules and obey the orders. I was working at a luxury travel company. I was a magazine editor. One of the top sales guys in the company. I was just constantly sitting behind a computer. All my work's done through email, and that was kind of when I got the idea. I can do this from anywhere. Times are changing, and certain people, like myself, uh, that just doesn't cut it. I travel with my husband now, and it's truly, I mean, the, the best decision that we ever made. And just no one likes a quitter. And no one likes a quitter, exactly. All the expressions that, we you know, you don't give up, you don't quit, you got to keep doing it and make it better. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with quitting if you're quitting for the purpose of making your life better. If you're quitting because you're in a toxic or unhealthy situation or relationship or event that you need to get out of, I don't think that people take that into account when they think about quitting. They just take that language that we've been force-fed and assume that there's something bad about leaving something you've been doing. And do you think that we have this misplaced sense of loyalty? For example, there are companies and they have the same degree of loyalty to their long-term employees that those employees have to the company. Where do you think our loyalty should lie? It's a great question because I feel like loyalty is an outdated concept in today's workforce. I remember my parents and my grandparents' generation that things were different. My grandmother worked for the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development in St. Louis for her entire life, basically, until she retired. My mother worked for the federal government also. She worked for the Pentagon, essentially, the Defense Department in St. Louis for a good part of her time. Then she moved to California and continued working for them, and then Texas and worked for them. But her whole life was based around working for the federal government for that one job. And there was a time when people could, even if you weren't in the federal government, you could go get a job, stay in that job from the time you're 20 until you're 65 and retire with a pension and a gold watch. But that doesn't happen anymore. That type of job stability or loyalty from employers is rare, non-existent. 
And so employees have to understand that we don't have to, or workers and individuals have to understand that we don't have to give our loyalty to people who aren't loyal to us. There's an old line I like to say that I mentioned in the book is that businesses do not exist to create jobs. They exist to create profit. And a lot of us have been misled by the whole sort of job creator mythology to believe that all these people who are out there creating these jobs, these business owners are doing it because they are doing it out of altruistic purposes to help humankind. But in reality, they're just trying to make a buck. And as soon as they can figure out a way to make a buck without you, they will. If they can find a cheaper laborer or find someone overseas or find a machine or a computer to be able to do your job, they will do that in a moment. Also, people are so disposable. At least I really see it at this age in my industry, right, where there's this turnover of the new and shiny. You know, I've been doing this since I was a little girl. The thought that I could actually do something else with my life has only really happened within the last eight years. And it was through my writing that made me realize that. I want to talk about your book because one of the things I noticed from your Scribd original book, Quitting, is that what matters to you in life is not always consistent. And this really resonated for me. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and how you came to realize it. That's a great point. I think I remember reading a quotation or seeing a statement somewhere years ago from Muhammad Ali. And I may be getting it wrong, but it's something along the lines of the person who sees the world at 50 the same way they saw it at 20 has wasted 30 years of their life. and. I guess that's a reflection, as I see it, of the fact that we're all dynamic creatures. None of us is static. We're all changing, evolving, growing. And so you may get into a relationship or a job or any sort of situation in your 20s and find yourself in your 30s and 40s not feeling that that is who you are or not feeling that that satisfies you or not even realizing there are other dimensions of your personality and your identity that you haven't explored. And so we don't have to get stuck in time just because of who we were at some point when we graduated from high school or college. That has to be the same person we are for the rest of our lives. I just love the idea that we have the freedom to continue to evolve and grow in our lives. I always feel like the point where I feel like I am dying is the point where I feel like I have nothing else to learn, nothing else to do. That to me feels like that. As long as I'm still out here living and enjoying my life and discovering new things, trying new things and exploring new places, I feel like that keeps me alive. You know what's a lot harder than it seems like it should be? Actually feeling alive. And what I mean by that is that we are all constantly doing, or at least we're constantly scrolling but we're not necessarily living. You know, we keep ourselves busy to the point of exhaustion, but we're also languishing. We feel a little bit dead inside. I agree, I feel the same way. But obviously, it takes a lot of courage to quit, especially in the economic climate that we are in right now. So what would you say to someone who really wants to make 
a change, who really wants to explore different facets of who they are, but is just blocked by fear. Fear sometimes works to keep us from doing things, but fear can also work to motivate us to do things. And I think what we saw last year in 2021 is that a lot of people were afraid of continuing to do what they had been doing and doing it in unhealthy environments. So we saw a record 47 million people quit their job last year and try to do something new. Some of them left to go explore new careers. Some tried to start new businesses. Some were more interested in just having more of a better work-life balance, being able to take care of their families or loved ones, or being able to have time for themselves. And so there's a lot of different reasons why people left. But I think it was the impetus of the COVID epidemic, the pandemic, the crisis that we were experiencing that kind of gave people that courage to take that step. Because you're right, it's not easy to do that. And I don't know that there's one sort of recipe or magic elixir that I can offer to tell people how to get that courage. But I also want people to understand that quitting doesn't mean you have to leave your job. There's a whole concept that people have been talking about with quiet quitting since this summer, where people are essentially quitting the idea that they have to devote themselves to their job and don't have time to take care of themselves. So if you have a job that ends at a certain time, you don't have to take that job home. You don't have to do more than what's required of you. It's an interesting concept today, especially when there's all this conversation about Elon Musk asking employees at Twitter to work harder, essentially, for the same amount. Did you see the news yesterday that he put hotels in the office, like rooms where there's beds and full, like, functional little hotel rooms? We talk about Foxconn, the Apple factory in China as this sort of this evil conglomerate that's making all these iPhones for us and everything. But I mean, it sounds like they're creating this sort of similar atmosphere here in the United States. And I don't think that's the direction that most Americans want to move. We want to have more freedom in our work-life balance. We don't want to have to live in our workplaces. I've been some uh, jobs before, some law firms where they actually have showers in the offices because they expect you to work so long. A lot of lawyers, when you graduate from law school, and you have your first year, second year associate, they expect you to build unreasonable numbers of hours, 2,000 more hours a year. And that requires people to spend almost all their time, all their weekends, very little free time, all their evenings at the office instead of living their lives. And I think people are fed up with that. It's harder sometimes even for people who are successful, like I mentioned before with lawyers, because we get caught up in these, what I call golden handcuffs, where people feel like, they can't escape because they get accustomed to a certain way of life. And if they leave this job, then how are they going to be able to support themselves in their house and their car and all the other things they've acquired? It's all about freedom. I really believe that people have choices in their lives. And I just want to encourage people to find a way to exercise those choices, irrespective of whether you have a high paying job or not, what we might call a working class job. I feel like all of us are workers and all of us have an opportunity to use our power. That's also part of the reason why I use the book not just to tell people to quit, but to make sort of a political statement about the importance of recapturing that power, the importance of changing the work-life equation by supporting labor unions, for example, supporting policies that encourage employers to give time off for employees, supporting workers who are trying to fight for a livable wage, supporting companies that are offering health care benefits and allowing people uh, paid time off for family and medical leave. All those policies that help to make 
life better for those who are working, regardless of where they're working. And also, like, I feel that it needs to be said that we need to be able to support, not financially, but in heart and spirit, support loved ones who potentially want to quit. Because the beginning of this pandemic, my husband came to me and he had a very powerful job at CAA, Creative Artists Agency. He was the head of the talent department. And he said, I'm not happy and I'm never going to make what I should be making here and I can't be creative in this job. And so I'm thinking about quitting and starting a business with some buddies. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm certainly not going to work. The industry is totally shut down. And you're telling me that you are choosing right now to start. And he was like, yeah, I really I feel like now is a time. And through just talking to my family and talking to my therapist, I just came to this place where I was like, why wouldn't I support him in making this choice and celebrate that he's saying, you know what, I want to spend more time with our kids and I want to be able to take Milo to baseball practice. And that's just never going to happen at this job. So before it all gets crazy and the kids are in high school and we can't figure out how to split up the sports and the dance classes and I want to make this move and make it successful. It took a lot of soul searching for me because I've been working for so long. I'm due to retire even at this young age because how many people start working at seven and then, you know, are still doing the same thing at 50. But I said to him, I support you in this decision. And I have to tell you, he is a completely different person. He is bright and vibrant and he does not miss baseball practice. He helps cook. He gets the kids up in the morning and it really feels like it's a true partnership because he made that change. I did this to show you that we don't always do as other people tell us to do. We'd rather do as other people do. And this is important when it comes to creating well-being in ourselves and in others. And so I think a big part of what you're saying is the loved ones have to also support someone's idea of wanting growth and wanting better and wanting to be better and wanting to do better. And sometimes that's hard for us. And a natural segue to my next question. And I would love your thoughts on this. Well, before you do that, I want to ask you, how did you get there, though? You said you weren't there and then you got there. I want to know what was the process that got you to the place where you were able to be supportive? Because I think people need to learn from that. The process was having really deep conversations with him. The process was having real deep conversations with my family, with his parents, my therapist, to just discuss how it made me feel, but without projecting how I was feeling onto him. Because what he was basically saying to me is, this isn't enough for me anymore. I needed to love him into this next phase of his life and not expect that it was always going to be that he would have this job and it would be super comfortable. Because in all honesty, yeah, sure, it brought us financial comfort, but there was a lot of uncertainty within the family unit of having to balance so much and being a working mom that has to go off to be on location. How was that decision that he was making for him going to also benefit my craft and my work and also parenthood and also just my kids and how much would they benefit from having him around more? So it really became like only about the only reason for him to stay in that job was financial. 
And to me, as our things shift in our lives, that wasn't what was important to me because I kept going, it's the worst that's going to happen. We have to downsize. And I realize I'm speaking from a place of privilege and I've been very blessed, but I was in the position where I could say, you know what, go follow your dreams. And it's benefited all of us. So I think that's really an important part of it, especially in marriage where you can get so set in the comfort of things. I think it's okay to be a little uncomfortable and say, we'll figure it out. I love you and I want you to be happy. Let's figure it out. I love the let's figure it out part because I think a lot of times when we approach problems or what we perceive to be problems in life or relationship, there's a tendency to just focus on the problem, not on the solution. And yeah, you're right. It's not an easy situation to figure your way out if you're you're accustomed to certain things and how do you change that? But there are ways to figure a lot of these things out. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. But that's what life is all about. It's about the process of evolution and growing with the people who are around us. There's a famous statement from Alice Walker who says that no person is your friend who denies your silence, who demands your silence or denies your right to grow. And we all have the right to grow. I often think about Caitlyn Jenner, even though I'm not a fan of her politics, just the idea of the transformation involved in her life and her relationship. And what is that like? You're married to someone and suddenly one day things change. How do you accommodate that? How do you deal with that? The reality is that, as I said before, who you are when you're 20 is not the same as who you are when you're 30, when you're 40, you're 50. So we have to figure out ways to give people that change. And I wonder if you could just touch on the differences between, say, quitting a job and quitting a relationship or a city or any sort of creative endeavor that just is no longer working for you. Yeah, I've done all of those. And not that I'm an expert in it, but just that I just have chosen to value my freedom above those other things. And I've been in relationships and not in relationships. And I've chosen from time to time when a relationship didn't work or wasn't healthy for me to leave that relationship. And the same thing with cities. I was living in New York City for 20 years and I just moved to Los Angeles in January. I just felt like New York had run its course for me. And I love New York still. I still have a place there, but It just wasn't the place where I saw myself growing and moving. So I wanted to be here in in LA instead. And in terms of other situations and creative endeavors, I spent much of my life in politics. And I feel like, I don't know if you remember the scene from The Godfather, where Michael Corleone says that every time I try to get out, they pull me right back in. I feel like that's my experience with politics. I've tried to get out of it so many times in my life and do other things. But every time I get out, I get drawn back right in. Um, even the past month or two with the midterm elections and then the Georgia runoff election, I got so caught up with that. I wasn't really focused on the creative ventures I was out here to work on. I truly felt happy when I left the rat race. It was the culmination of the fear, the empowerment, the gratitude, the freedom. All those things came together. All those cylinders were firing, pistons firing. That to me was what happiness really, really felt like. And that's what it's all about. It's interesting. It's not always easy. And life isn't necessarily a straight line. Sometimes it's a zigzag. You move from one place to the next. It requires some rebalancing. And I keep feeling, I feel like I'm quoting a lot of people, but one of the people I want to quote now is Iyanla Venzat. I read a book of hers years ago, a book called Value in the Valley. And the reason why I remember this is because she says in the book that life isn't about leaping from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. And sometimes you climb up the mountain 
And then you have to go back down again and climb up another mountain. And I think that's an apt analogy for me for what it's like to quit any of those things, whether it's a job or a relationship or a career choice or a creative endeavor. You have to constantly be challenging yourself. You can't just sit at that plateau and think you've done enough. For exactly the reason you mentioned in the industry here in Hollywood, that there's always something new or someone else new. So you've got to figure out a way to sort of make yourself valuable and well, not make yourself valuable because we are all valuable to show your ability to adapt and learn and to grow with the changing times. Did you ever quit something and think, man, I wish I hadn't done that? <laughs> the funny thing about this is that I literally quit Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2009. I quit Twitter the day when Elon Musk brought Donald Trump back on. And I had no regrets about it at first. But then when the Georgia runoffs happened, and I couldn't keep up with all the news that was going on because I was so used to just going to Twitter and finding out what was going on. I felt a little left out from the equation. I mean, there was a little bit of regret about doing it, but I deactivated my account with the purpose of I didn't want to be a part of a platform where I felt that hate was rising and racism and sexism, misogyny and homophobia and transphobia, anti-Semitism and bigotry. I just wanted to be in a safer environment. So I haven't decided I'm never going to go back. Maybe at some point, if things change or if there's better content moderation or new ownership, I might return. But I did have a little bit of regret, as I said, on election night when I couldn't follow what was going on. (laughs) But other than that, you know, I mean, that's part of the process of, of growing and learning. politics, you've been involved for a long time. And one of the things you've written about is that it's okay for Democrats, and I presume this holds true for Republicans as well, to criticize leaders in our own party. And I could not agree more. I think that is actually a really important part of functioning democracy. When is it time to quit on a candidate or a party? We saw today that Kristen Sinema, is now an independent. You know, she did that right after Warnock won, which I just don't, I don't understand it. But to her, that was the move. So when is it okay to quit on a party? And is it worth sticking it out and trying to guide them in the right direction? In her case, I think she may have been trying to stay relevant and trying to be reelected because I don't know how easy it will be in 2024 when she's going up against a Democratic primary opponent and a Republican opponent in the general election, assuming she makes it that far. So are you saying that instead of doing what's right for the country, that she would selfishly want to prepare and do what she had to do to win the re-election? Shocking though it may seem, <laughs> yes, that, that that does happen. It's a great question you asked at the base of this, though, which is when do you quit? And I've been a lifelong Democrat, as you can tell from my story, but I feel like the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do on a lot of issues that are important to me. I've worked for candidates before with whom I did not agree on a lot of issues. I'm very progressive on practically every issue and probably much more progressive than any candidate I've ever worked for and more progressive than most candidates have voted for. But I feel like part of my role is try to push the party that I am a part of to move more in the direction that I believe in. 
I also believe that it's okay to have other parties. I think that at some point there will be other political parties because I don't think two political parties are enough to define 330 million people who live in this country. But, but in the meantime, we have to work with what we have. And I feel like part of that for me means trying to push those parties to be better. For those people who feel like they want to quit, either party, I understand that. I just hope they don't quit the political process altogether, at least in terms of voting. Because that's the most effective way we can make a difference in the world. And it's important that we let our voices be heard. So let's say you, gives me the shivers just thinking about it, but let's say you were a registered Republican and you watched the insurrection on January 6th and you're like, but I've been a lifetime Republican. How do you talk to those people and say, you know what, it's okay to quit a party that has made these choices. I was a registered Republican for a year or two by accident. <laughs> I was living in Florida and they accidentally registered me as a Republican. I, was, I didn't realize until later on, so that had to be changed. But I don't understand how you could, if you say you believe in the Constitution, for example, which so many of these Republicans have been saying they do, and you have a guy who's out there saying we need to terminate the Constitution itself. Trump is calling for the termination of the Constitution. Uh, to overturn the 2020 election and put him back in power. Uh, the White House is now condemning him for this. Um, obviously, this is just more desperation from, from the former president. It's, it's not going to happen. How do you continue reconciling your belief in the Constitution and your support for this guy? If you say you believe in law and order, and then you have a guy who's supporting an insurrection that is violently attacking Capitol Police officers, how do you reconcile that, that distinction? If you say you believe in pro-life and then you support a candidate like Herschel Walker, who's been accused of paying for multiple abortions, how do you justify that contradiction? If you say you believe in these values, family values and morality, how do you defend Donald Trump after all of his lies and immorality? It just it, There's just so much inconsistency about it. And I think you just want to have any sort of intellectual honesty about yourself or integrity. If you are a Republican, you believe in any of those principles, you have to leave the party. I remember when my previous book came out, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. I did an interview with Michael Steele for his podcast. He was a former chair of the Republican National Committee, an African-American. I did his podcast as well. Yeah. And I made a point to him that I thought maybe people should stay in the Republican Party and try to make it better. And he told me, and I was shocked to hear him say this, he told me it's too late. This is the former chair of the Republican National Committee saying it's too late. It makes no sense to join the Republican Party or stay in the Republican Party to try to change it. It's dead, essentially. And that's a stinging indictment of where that party is and how much it's changed. But look at there are a few gems that have risen to the top of this madness. I think of Joe Walsh. I think of Congressman Kinzinger, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. There are some people who have just, and even though they haven't necessarily quit the party, they quit the part of the party <laughs> that is allowing this to happen, not only to the Republican Party, but also to the country. Yeah, they have. And I support them for doing that. But I also feel like we're grading them on a curve because that's the least you would expect for people to do in a functioning democracy. If you would have said to me 15 years ago, you're going to really like Liz Cheney. I would have been like, fuck you. I'm never liking a Cheney. What are you talking about? And it is funny how, again, our ideas change, what we find accessible and okay changes. I don't know if they deserve extra credit 
or doing what they're supposed to do, but I'm glad that they're doing what they're supposed to do. So what are you going to quit next? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) I don't really plan to quit things. It just kind of happens. I wasn't planning to quit Twitter. I was literally at a Friendsgiving party the day when Donald Trump was readmitted back to Twitter. And I got a news alert that he was back on Twitter and I couldn't believe it. And I went and checked it out and I said, okay, I'm out. And I didn't even give it any thought because I just knew immediately it was time for me to go. And I don't really have a plan for anything to quit next, but I feel like it's a series of different choices. Whenever there's something in our lives that doesn't serve us, it's unhealthy or is toxic, I think it's our responsibility, not necessarily to quit it, but to address it, to figure out why is this happening? What are we doing about it to make our lives better or to address the problem? And if we can't, address, if we can't resolve it, then it's important to leave. But I don't tell people just to quit because you're unhappy. I don't feel like that's helpful. Don't quit every time there's a problem in life or relationships or job, but you quit when you feel like there's nothing else you can do to make this a healthy place for you to be. And finally, what gives you hope? There's a lot of things that give me hope, but two that come into mind in particular. One is young people, because I see there's so many young people out there who have inspired and encouraged me. And as I said before, I've taught at several different colleges over the years. My students at Columbia and City College in New York really inspired me and taught me a lot of things, taught me, you know, I learn a lot from my students and they don't just learn from me, taught me to see the world through their eyes. So that gives me hope that there is a vibrant, I think, strong and vigorously engaged future out there. The second thing that gives me hope is that I feel like People are starting to understand the importance of using our time wisely. Dr. King talked about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He said that there's a misconception that time is always positive, and we have to avoid that and understand that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. So we can't just assume that the passage of time, that we'll have more diversity, more women, more people of color, more LGBTQIA people, and suddenly the world is going to become a better place. It doesn't happen that way. We still have to be engaged in the process of making that change happen. So I am hopeful that people are starting to see, because we've had some steps backward with some of the steps forward, I'm hopeful that people are starting to see that we can use our time wisely, we can be constructive about it, and we can make positive change for our country and for the world. Keith, you give me hope. (laughs) Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. If you ask it, a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Isn't it weird that the answer is never judge? I mean, often you ask little kids and they go a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer as if those professions are the pinnacle of all professions. You know, I want to meet a kid who goes like butcher. You know, you ask a kid, what do you want to be in the future? And they go something like a baggage handler at the airport. Now that would have been an interesting kid. But... Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, I I never wanted to do an ordinary thing, you know, because when you're a child, your brain simplifies things. You don't really think of a profession being a profession per se. You just look at people who do it and you think whether you want to be them or not. So I used to look at, for example, I had a friend whose father is a famous rich doctor, but I I never liked him. I mean, the, the dude was always busy and his house smelled like kinder needle milk. I never liked that. So I didn't want to become that. 
I remember wanting to become someone interesting, you know, happy and interesting. What value is there in security if you are secured to something that makes you miserable? How secure is that, really? What I love about Keith's message about the idea of quitting and pursuing happiness is that it redefines the prioritization so many of ourselves place on not rocking the boat and in favor of securing a life we each find worth living. Yes, there is fear in doing something like that. Yes, there is risk. But isn't there also risk at sticking around in one place so long that we stagnate? Our value is not derived from loyalty placed into a company which almost certainly does not feel the same loyalty to you. How many of us work for companies which would not cut ties with us if we weren't contributing to their bottom line? They will pursue their own interests, so maybe, just maybe, it's time for all of us to pursue ours. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.